Greetings guys, gals, non-binary pals. Welcome back to Botany After Dark. My name is Rin, and today we're getting back to the podcast's roots. Exploring the world of poisons, potions, and brews, but with a bit of a twist for you. Christmas or the general holiday season. So, today we're discussing the history and nature of fly agaric, also known as Montia muscaria. Now, while perhaps not classed as a plant per se, because it is a fungus, uh, the Montia muscaria mushroom is a rather culturally significant organism. And ecologically significant organism, really. Um, it has a native range spanning from much of the northern hemisphere and has been unintentionally introduced into the southern hemisphere. Uh, it's often a symbiote in birch and pine plantations as well. Uh, this is a, this introduction is especially problematic because it is a rather prolific species, meaning that it spreads rather rapidly, and populations can increase rather rapidly, um, uh, causing the A. muscaria to become invasive in many of the regions that it is introduced to, and consequently causing the native species that fulfill whatever niche the A. muscaria is coming into to be pushed out in their natural habitats. This is especially an issue uh, it's especially an issue in places like New Zealand, Tasmania, and parts of Australia, namely uh, where the rainforests, especially where birch, pine, and other kind of trees like that have been introduced especially on the tree plantation areas, because that's where they grow. Um, it's an ectomycorrhizal species, meaning that the Amuscaria forms a symbiotic relationship with receptive tree species within their uh, habitat range. So the mushroom's presence is entirely dependent on the host tree also being present. Um, as a mycorrhizal species, these fungi play a specific significant role in the host plant's rhizosphere or root system, impacting the nutrition absorption, soil biology, and ultimately the soil chemistry surrounding the tree. And also of note, it sometimes, uh, sometimes the relationships can be parasitic instead of symbiotic. Now, well, these, um, well, these now invasive fungi have not yet spread to Australia's extensive native eucalyptus forests, as far as we know, in Muscaria has been seen growing in 
conjunction with eucalyptus species in Portugal, so there is a precedent for concern there. Um, as there are native species fulfilling the symbiotic role that a muscaria would usurp, essentially, uh, it becomes an encroaching invasive species that by the very nature of what it is causes alteration in the environments and to the organisms within those environments altering the chemical composition of the soil they inhabit as uh, many plants and fungi release chemical markers into the surrounding soil. This is especially concerning as Australian, Tasmanian, and New Zealand ecosystems and inhabiting wildlife are often highly specialized, each with fulfilling a very particular niche with very particular requirements and concerns. For example, it's unknown what impact a muscaria would have on the eucalyptus's nutrient processing and transfer to the leaves in its canopy. And just as pandas are dependent on the bamboo forest that they inhabit for their entire sustenance, essentially, minus a few things, koalas are dependent on the prevalence of eucalyptus. There's admittedly not much food value, not, not much nutrition to be gained from the eucalyptus leaves themselves, but if the nutrient content that is there is altered, then it would potentially highly negatively affect the koala populations that inhabit the trees. And have that as their essentially sole food source. Uh, when they're young, the fungal fruiting body, so the the fungal body that would have the spores in it when it's uh, developed, essentially, often resembles a white egg and it tends to grow in patches or clusters uh, with individual mushrooms or uh, basidiocarps appearing in all stages of development. So you don't have just like all mature mushrooms or all immature mushrooms. You have uh, situations where every life stage is present, or most life stages are present, depending on the location and how the spores fell and whatever else. When fully mature, the cap is flat or inverted slightly upward, especially on the edges, and it's generally 8 to 20 centimeters or 3 to 8 inches in diameter. Uh, larger examples have been seen, though, so it just depends. Um, the stipe or stalk is 5 to 20 centimeters or 
two to about eight inches tall by one to two centimeters or half an inch to an inch wide and shares its somewhat kind of brittle fibrous texture with many other large mushrooms. Uh, unlike certain species, there is no distinctive smell other than a mild general earthiness that you would associate with kind of most mushroom species. Um, there are some that have a rather pungent aroma. This is not one of them. Uh, the most iconic of the mushroom species, uh, a muscaria, uh, displays a distinctive red or red-orange cap uh, flecked with white and has white gills below. And one thing to note for mushroom ID is the, the gills are often more distinctive than the cap when you're trying to identify it, so just be aware of that. Uh, there are certain variants, though, of Amoscaria with yellow or tan components that we might discuss at a later date if that's of interest, but for now I'm referring to the type species Amante Muscaria variant Muscaria, which type species simply means that if you're talking about a species, that is the image that you're referencing, essentially. That's that's the species that you're working with. And if there's something that differs from that, then it's notable when you're discussing it, essentially. And that variant has a red or red-orange cap and is native to the Eurasian continent. Um, notably, this species can also have a orange or yellow cap if the purple pigments are kind of slow to develop. And well, particular to Amantia species, the yellow or white warts or kind of bumps generally present can be removed by rainfall. These warts, if you call them that, are component remnants of the universal veil that covers mushrooms when they're very young. So it's it's essentially like part of the the protective container, if you will. Uh, previously we were saying that when the mushrooms are very young they were kind of resemble an egg. It's essentially. Uh, when the cap grows, the red pigments develop with age and the spots remain the same size when they're left alone because those parts of that like outside sheath, for lack of a better word, have just stayed in place as the rest of the cap expands. Um, in a muscaria, remnants of this veil also become two or four, or two to four, distinct ruffs occurring somewhere between the basal bulb and the gills along the stipe. 
So if you look at mushrooms, there's the cap and a bit of a, a stalk with like the base that tends to be wider than the midpoint on the rest of the stalk. And sometimes there's like almost like layered, um, not fibers, but layered material, essentially. Uh, that sort of dips out from the, the central stalk a little bit under the gills. That's what we're talking about here. The, um, the, the roughs on there. Uh, though often considered a poison, these mushrooms are not known to be deadly. That's not to say that you should make a point of eating them or even attempting it. Uh, if there's any other options available. Uh, still, their attributed deaths are extremely rare and most often uh, fatality results from an aggravated bodily response due to pre-existing conditions rather than the mushrooms themselves. Uh, but uh, while having psychoactive properties, these mushrooms are non-toxic if they are parboiled or partially boiled twice and the water is drained after each. So I boil it, drain the water, boil it again, drain the water. You might be able to get away with it, it's fine. But also would not suggest. Uh, this both weakens the mushroom's toxicity and begins to break down the psychoactive components. Essentially, it's the same principle as boiled or cooked beans versus raw. In most cases, you have to make sure to fully cook beans in order to ingest them and have no negative side effects. Uh, the most notable of these hallucinogenic compounds that would be boiled out, essentially, are ibotenic acid, which acts as a conformationally restricted analog to the neurotransmitter glutamate and muscimol, which is a selective agonist for GABA receptors and displays characteristics of depressant, sedative, hypnotic, and hallucinogenic psychoactivity. Muscomol was initially studied as a potential treatment for epilepsy, which studies have since discontinued on that. Uh, which is why... <sighs> Okay. 
So, why is such an intriguing mushroom called fly agaric, though? Well, according to the tax taxonomological mm, records, a muscaria was first recorded by Albertus Magnus in his text De Vegetabilis at some point prior to 1256 uh, CE, noting that Vocator fungus muscarum aocode in lacte pulverizatus in their muscus. Or, quote, it is called the fly mushroom because it is powdered in milk to kill flies. Kind of does what it says on the tin at that point. Uh, it was also known as St. Albert the Great. What? Oh, right. Albertus Magnus, who wrote De Vigitabilis, was also known as St. Albert the Great or Albert of Cologne. Uh, this account of adding a muscaria to milk to kill flies was corroborated even centuries later by both the 16th century Flemish botanist Carlos Clausus, who traced the practice to Germany, and Carlos Linnaeus, who reported the same occurring during his childhood in Swaland in uh, southern Sweden. Uh, additionally, John Ramswadham, an English mycologist, noted that a muscaria had been used as a general insecticide in both England and Sweden, uh, and an old alternative name that it went by was also Bug Agaric. Alternatively, there's a theory that the fly in Fly Agaric is not a mention of the insect attracting abilities of uh, 1.3 diolin uh, or 1.3 diacis9-octadecanol-glycerol uh, which is the potent, or potentially potent, attracting compound found in these mushrooms. Uh, instead, it is sometimes thought that this is in reference to the delirium sometimes seen after consumption of the fungus. Uh, this is substantiated with the mistaken medieval belief that flies could enter a person's head causing mental illness. As previously stated, the mushroom was, or was, has a rather wide range of endemic habitation. So, there's a lot of potential variation in cultural exposure, uh, cultural interaction, and just across the board. But, having it as a um, option to kill flies or other such flying insects 
seem to seems to be a commonality. Um, we noted that while only endemic to the northern hemisphere, there are like featured species native to other regions, and often individuals mistake these psychoactive varieties for their relatively benign or outright edible cousins. So, to echo the first podcast episode and an 80s Canadian PSA, um, if you don't know what it is, don't put it in your mouth. It's truly words to live by. Literally. So, although these particular may not be deadly, they still cause at least discomfort and altered perception, and often severe hallucination and digestive upset, especially if consumed prior to double boiling, as stated previously. Because, also as stated previously, if you eat them raw, then you haven't done anything to break down the compounds or dilute them. It's just full force in your face. Um, now, while there may be some immense cultural significance for this fungi in North America, across Eurasia, the Middle East, Scandinavia, it's, um, Siberia and, uh, northern Scandinavia that we're going to be focusing on. Though there is speculation as to Amoscaria's roles in other cultures and regions, its historical use as an intoxicant and ethnogen by the peoples of Siberia has been well documented. Um, in this context, we will discuss the genus type species Amoscaria, though there are closely related others within that genus that we might explore in later episodes. Uh, According to some sources, the origins of Amoscaria's use can be traced to shamans of the Sami people uh, seeking, seeing, there we go, uh, reindeer eat the mushrooms and then subsequently drinking the urine of the same reindeer in order to imbibe the mushrooms' mind-altering properties. Um, I remember reading years ago that it was essentially uh, filtering out the things that would be poisonous or deadly to humans. But as we've discussed, the mushrooms, while providing a rather strong hallucination and digestive upset, are not deadly, generally, unless there's pre-existing conditions. So, that's a bit odd there. Um, but they, the theory was, uh, that people would drink the urine of the same reindeer in order to imbibe the mushroom's mind-altering properties. There are likewise accounts claiming this to be the origin of Santa and his flying reindeer. Uh, the red and white suit being somewhat reminiscent of the mushroom. Uh, however, while multiple historians have made this claim, 
Several historical anthropologists and the Sami themselves dispute it. Uh, about these theories, Donald Feister, uh, curator and biology professor at Harvard's Farlow Reference Library and Herbarium, and colleague Ann Pringle, argue that there is unquestionable symbolic association between the color scheme present in the red and white of Santa's uniform and a likewise strong connection to the myth as a whole. Uh, magically flying reindeer and a jolly gift giver dressed as a mushroom is an interesting idea, after all. Uh, additionally, there's an idea that uh, uh, there's an idea that quote Santa is a modern counterpart of a shaman who consumed mind-altering plants and fungi to commune with the spirit world. End quote. Uh, from John Rush, who's an anthropologist and instructor at Sierra College in Rockland, California. According to the theory, the legend of Santa derives from shamans in the Siberian and Arctic regions, uh, who dropped into locals' teepee-like homes with a bag full of hallucinatory mushrooms and presents in late December, Rush said. Furthermore, the story goes, uh, furthermore, quote, as the story goes, up until a few hundred years ago, these practicing shamans or priests connected uh, to the older traditions would collect Amantia muscaria, or the tolly mushroom, dry them, and then give them as gifts on the winter solstice. Uh, Rush says in a uh, interview with Life Science in 2012. Because snow is usually blocking doors, there was an opening in the roof through which people entered and exited, thus the chimney story. Now, these lava structures, as were being described, uh, which are the traditional uh, temporary housing for the Sami, uh, well, following the herds are seasonal dwellings. They're meant for easy setup and takedown, enabling the inhabitants to move easily with the reindeer herds' migrations. And while sharing similar features with indigenous American TPs, the Lavo has a generally larger base. Uh, sitting closer to the ground in order to endure the harsh, in order to endure the harsh tundral winds in northern Scandinavia. Also, while potentially plausible in a pinch, it's unlikely that climbing through the structure's smoke hole, which is what the central hole would be for, because there's a fire in there to keep the space warm. Uh, Apologies if the mic just got weird. Okay. It's unlikely that climbing through the structure smoke hole would be a routine exercise. It's likewise unlikely that the culture shamans would be handing out hallucinogens in mass on the solstice. Uh, while I cannot speak for all, obviously, 
In most traditions, botanical and like allies are seen as greatly powerful and not to be trifled with. Consequently, it's only those who have undergone the proper training and exposure who are often allowed to take part in such ceremonies. Additionally, some practices or aspects of practices are closed to outsiders, either of the community or the group of practitioners within the community. Uh, other purported connections include Rudolph's glowing red nose that is apparently meant to represent the red of the mushroom, guiding the sleigh, and the presence under the tree sometimes being wrapped in red and white paper. Uh, the gift wrapping being connected to the mushroom's tendency to grow uh, in the protected underbrush of pine trees and other such canopies. Uh, well, hypotheses, these claims are compelling. It forces you to look at the symbolism and colors and shapes and overall expressions of culture. However, uh, while there are records of psychoactives being used in Sami shamanic traditions, there's no mention of flying reindeer or other Santa-esque lore. According to Arja Jompanen, a researcher at Saida, uh, which is the National Museum of Finnish Sami in Inari, Regarding these perceived origin stories, quote, mushrooms have been used to a certain extent in shamanic ceremonies, but drinking urine has not been mentioned in accounts of Sami traditions. Further, Hakan Redving, uh, an expert in Sami religion at Norway's University of Bergen, states that, quote, there is no such information at all from the Sami world neither about drinking urine of reindeer, nor of seeing flying reindeer in their dreams. In a discussion with NPR, Ronald Hutton, a historian and specialist in pre-Christian folklore and contemporary paganism at the University of Bristol, said that the theory of a mushroom-santa connection is off-base. If you look at the evidence, uh, of Siberian shamanism, he says, which I've done, uh, you find that shamans didn't travel by sleigh, didn't usually deal with reindeer spirits, very rarely took the mushrooms to get trances, and didn't have red and white clothes. And while there have likely been individual accounts of people experimenting with particular practices, it's much more likely that the current coloration and depiction of Santa Claus is connected directly to Clement Clark Moore's 1823 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which later became the famous Twas the Night Before Christmas, and the overt commercialization of the character and early Coca-Cola marketing. However, even with the absence of hallucinogens and magical mushrooms, reindeer are an integral part of Sami culture, dating back centuries. Not all families are herders, and some keeping to the coast as fishers, others doing neither. Uh, as with most places, certain phrases and place names remain from older times. 
in this instance, reindeer can walk. <clears throat> reindeer can't walk too far without answering the call of nature, writes the San Diego Tribune. In fact, they are unable to walk and pee at the same time, so they have to take bathroom breaks roughly every six miles. In Finnish, this distance, this distance is known as Porolkusma. Probably said that wrong. Alright. Also known as reindeer space. <laughs> and was an old-fashioned description of distances in the countryside. Uh, while there are many articles written describing Amoscaria and its connection with the Sami reindeer herds and Santa Claus, most seem to contain the same information as previously mentioned. While it is true that in shamanic traditions, practitioners tend to have interactions with nature spirits, whether they be animal, plant, or other, the practice of working with nature spirits, especially with the aid of psychoactive Amoscaria mushrooms, is not a norm. As with the vast majority of cultural elements, there's likely some truth within the story, but embellishments do happen. Uh, from what I've seen in my sources, Sami shamans do sometimes work with reindeer spirits or reindeer presenting spirits. They also might sometimes ingest mind-altering substances to better facilitate communication or consider other mysteries. There is, however, no record of psychoactive reindeer urine taking place. Or consumption of psychoactive reindeer urine taking place. Again, well, some likely tried it because humans are prone to experiments. It's not replicated with even remote consistency. Ultimately, St. Nicholas originated as a 3rd or 4th century C.E. Bishop of Greece's Myra, with a tendency toward gift-giving to children as a form of charity and enacting miracles. Over the intervening centuries, there were stories of folk characters giving gifts to children in varying capacities, each having different cultural variations in costuming, offerings, gifts received, etc. And it wasn't until 1821 that the idea of a reindeer-drawn sleigh was introduced in an anonymous poem entitled Old Santa Claus with Much Delight. Uh, Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, his reindeer drives this frosty night, or chimney tops and tracks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to yo. It says you, but going with the cadence. Uh, yes. Um, many of the adaptations at the time appear to come from Dutch origin, so there might be a correlation there as well. However, it's Moore's 1823 A Visit from St. Nicholas. <clears throat> A visit from St. Nicholas that really solidified much of the current idea of Santa flying reindeer and all. 
Uh, there is a precedent for magical beings to travel the skies in a sled or chariot or other device pulled by animals in war. Uh, Freya had large cats. Apollo had a team of horses. That sort of thing. Well, true that origins of these stories likely have roots in altered states of consciousness, consciousness or drawing on various cultural references, it's rather unlikely that Santa mythology can be traced directly back to the Sami. Uh, it's instead more plausible that bits and pieces of several cultures across many centuries influenced the image and traditions we know today. There are also far more palatable preparations for Amanti Mascara than drinking reindeer pee, though, again, would not recommend. Um, but that is where we will end the discussion for today. So, for more podcast episodes, uh, check out my YouTube page or anything else um, you'd like to find uh, by going to uh, linktree forward slash adventurin so l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash a-d-v-e-n-t-u-r-y-n um, a subtitled version of this is currently up on the Ethnobotany YouTube channel as we speak, where all the sources are also available. Uh, likewise, there's links to the blog and YouTube channel where I talk more about plants, where this is going to be, as well as my Patreon and relevant social media links. And once I can figure out how to do it, the podcast filming will be live on the Patreon. Uh, the recording would be on the YouTube, the audio only, it's on the podcast site itself and wherever podcasts are available. And uh, for anyone interested in seeing the live research for these episodes, you can pop over to twitch.tv forward slash adventure in on Thursdays at 3 p.m. GMT minus 8. To all my listeners at home, work, or somewhere in between, thank you for tuning in. Talk to you next week. It should be an interesting show. Have a good one. This is Rim signing off. Bye, everybody. Yeah.